On an island in the East Indies, in a lost city buried deep in the heart of the rainforest, agents of the most formidable powers in the galaxy are gathering. They have been invited there to bid for what could turn out to be the deadliest weapon ever created. When the Doctor and Sam arrive in the city, the Time Lord soon realises they've walked straight into the strangest auction in history, and what's on sale to the highest bidder is something more horrifying than even the Doctor could have imagined, something that could change his life forever. And just when it seems things can't get any worse, the Doctor finds out who else is on the guest list. Welcome to We're All Stories in the End, and our first full episode, Looking at Alien Bodies, by Lawrence Miles. Welcome, again, to the secret library of St John the Beheaded, where we're going to have a very rigorous look at what is a very controversial and very well-loved EDA. And before we get into what people thought of the book, let's find out what it's all about in this exciting new feature I'm calling The Synopsis. Prologue. The Third Doctor and Sarah Jane Smith recover the Soviet space capsule containing Laika, the first dog in space, and give her a dignified burial on the planet Quiesia. Sarah Jane deduces the Doctor is doing this in the hope that one day someone may do the same for him. Lieutenant Bregman and the pleasingly alliterative Colonel Cortez of Unisic are making their way through a rainforest in search of something called the Unthinkable City. Meanwhile, the Doctor is in Geneva, trying to play chess with their boss, General Jike. In the Unthinkable City, we meet its unappetising creator, Mr Quixotl, who is here, on Earth, in order to sell something. Back in Geneva, Chike of Unisic, an organisation that evolved from UNIT, mentions the mission to Borneo shortly before the Doctor chooses to throw himself out of a 46th floor window. In the city, we meet a Time Lord, Mr Homunculet, and an incorporeal alien intelligence called the Shift. In a flashback to London in 2169, Homunculet visits the Houses of Parliament where a man in black sells weapons. Homunculet's mission for the Time Lords is to secure an item called the Relic, an object the Time Lords believe can help them win their war. But the man in black has already sold the Relic and all he can give Homunculet is a mysterious invitation to a location deep within a rainforest. Homunculet returns to his companion, Marie, who has chocolate-coloured skin, braided hair and is bigger on the inside. She's a Type 103 TARDIS. Surviving his leap from the window on floor 46 of Unisic headquarters, the Doctor and his companion, Samantha Angeline Jones, arrive in Borneo, and the Doctor locks onto the Brigadoon circuit of the unthinkable city. Meanwhile, Bregman and Cortez reach the ziggurat at the heart of the city and split up to reconnoitre. As they run from the leopards, the Doctor deduces the creatures are part of the city's defences, so when they reach the outskirts of the city, he adds his and Sam's biodata to the security records, thus granting them safety and access. Quixotl is met by Mr Trask, a sort of zombie, who is keen to avoid the auction and strike a preemptive deal for the relic. Two more guests arrive, skeleton-headed goths in Victorian attire. Spotting them from a distance, the Doctor instantly identifies them as belonging to something called Faction Paradox. 
By way of exposition, he hands Sam a book enabling her to read a few pages about the time-travelling voodoo cult thought to have originated from a handful of rogue time lords. In the bar, Homunculet is chatting to Bregman when the two members of the faction enter and he is transfixed. Meanwhile, a very worried Quixotl scurries through the ziggurat having just learned that the Doctor and Sam have added themselves to the guest list. The Doctor finds Marie and enters her. Behave! Homunculet is wild with anger and revulsion at the presence of Cousin Justine and little brother Manuel from the faction, but the tension is punctured when Marie materialises and emits the unconscious Doctor. His identity causes pandemonium. In Arizona, in 2069, Unisic attend the humanitarian crisis of a destroyed city. Some sort of casket has fallen to earth and the impact has obliterated Phoenix. Footage doesn't quite reveal who took the body, but General Chike receives an invitation to send representatives to an auction for the body. The Doctor regains consciousness and hastily passes himself off as another legit bidder here for the auction, a ruse which Quixotl is quick to support. The Doctor realises he must have met Quixotl somewhere before. Marie heads off for some peace and quiet, realises who a few of the delegates must logically represent, and promptly explodes. Sam finds Bregman smoking a cannabis cigarette and they discuss the culture shock of meeting honest-to-goodness aliens. While Homunculet begins to repair Marie, a black spaceship appears one light-year from Earth, locks onto the coordinates of the unthinkable city, and then begins to close in. Sam and Bregman explore the ziggurat, while Homunculat continues to fume at what's happened to Marie, who remains dormant but has reverted to her default shape, a 1960s British policewoman. He is sure the faction carried out the attack on his TARDIS. The shift tells the Doctor that Homunculat comes from the far future of a war-torn Gallifrey. The Doctor wonders who the adversary may be. Sam and Bregman find their way into the faction's shrine, a rudimentary TARDIS which runs on occult rites. The walls and floor are black, and within each of the hundreds of roundels sits a skull. The Doctor confronts Quixotl, who in short order confirms the object to be sold at the auction is a body, one with unique and powerful biodata, and then admits it is the body of the Doctor himself. Brother Manuel surprises Bregman in the shrine and takes a blood sample from her. Quixotl tells the Doctor a little about the war Gallifrey is waging and mentions the Celestes, formerly the Celestial Intervention Agency, who saw the war coming and took themselves out of time and space. Homunculet attacks Cousin Justine. The black spaceship arrives in Earth's orbit. The Doctor rages about how dangerous the auction is and jokes that Quixotl may as well have invited the Daleks. Quixotl, it turns out, did in fact invite the Daleks. Brother Manuel is now controlling Bregman, who is walking through the city's lower levels, tailed by Sam. The black ship lands on the roof of the ziggurat. Manuel saves Justine from Homunculet's furious assault. The Doctor and Quixotl enter the ship and find the decayed remains of some Daleks. Bregman finds the vault containing the relic which triggers a city-wide alarm, while the Doctor finds a large crystalline spider sucking the life juice out of a final Dalek. The Doctor is slightly surprised to identify the occupant of the ship. The Dalek's place at the auction has been taken by... the Crotons. In a flashback to events on the planet Dronid, 
we learn that Quixote was trying to buy a new dematerialization circuit for his TARDIS from a crime boss called Mr. Gabriel, who tells him that the Time Lords are gearing up for war and the Doctor is involved. Later that night, Quixote has what he hopes will be a highly lucrative idea. Sam and Bregman are physically and psychologically attacked by the city's security systems. The Doctor and Quixote lead the Croton, E. Cobalt Prime, from the craft, where he reacts to Earth's higher gravity and begins to grow a new and familiar Croton form. Presently, Quixote sends for all absent bidders. It is time to begin the auction. One of the city's antibodies attacking Sam learns that she has, impossibly, got two distinct sets of biodata. The Doctor abandons the auction to rescue the two human women. The bidding begins. E. Cobalt offers the secrets of Croton weaponry. But no one seems to take this offer particularly seriously. Homunculette, for example, offers the secrets of the Time Lord's arsenal. Little brother Manuel communes with Bregman and offers to rescue her from the crypt if she agrees to steal the relic for him. E. Cobalt finally realises his bid has failed to impress, and so he begins to assess other strategic options for obtaining the relic. The Doctor deactivates the city's defences to rescue Sam, who is dreaming about a parallel version of herself who smokes, drinks, takes drugs and lives a murky life near King's Cross. Together, they encounter Bregman, although the Doctor instantly spots the Unisic Lieutenant is possessed by Manuel, who calls the Doctor a Time Pussy. The Time Lord begins an exorcism. Meanwhile, Manuel now knows who the Doctor really is, and reveals it to the bidders which causes the auction to collapse. Everyone becomes violent, even the Doctor, and everyone chooses a foe to attack. The Doctor realises they are all being manipulated by the Shift. The Doctor temporarily traps the Shift in his unconscious mind. The consciousness reveals he's trying to wreck the auction and secure the relic for his employers, the Celestes. Returning to the auction, the Doctor exposes the Shift and people calm down, although E. Cobalt promptly vanishes. The Doctor and Sam give chase but find their way blocked by a corridor full of miniature corrosive devices that eat through flesh, just like what happens when you toss a chicken leg into the path of the Vashta Narada. Realising the city's defences are down, E. Cobalt has returned to his ship and prepares to attack, spurred on by the shift, hiding inside his mind. In flashback we learn about the origins of the shift. A Gabrielidian, sent to fight for the Time Lords in the war, almost killed by the enemy, and nursed back to life by someone who might well be the Seventh Doctor before being taken by Faction Paradox, having his mind edited to remove most traces of his personality and memories. Cortez is outside the city as E. Cobalt opens fire. Cortez is caught in the firestorm and badly burnt. The Doctor asks Cousin Justine if they can all escape in her shrine. In the air above the city, E. Cobalt's reinforcements arrive. Ten dinotropes, an entire Croton war spear. As the bidders recover the relic, it begins to talk to the Doctor telepathically, warning him that Sam is not all she seems. Look at them, it says, Smith and Jones. It's so obvious it's almost painful. As a new Croton enters the city and attacks the group, Homunculette hides inside Marie while the others run for the faction's TARDIS. Quixotl is not so lucky and gets fatally injured in the Croton barrage. The Doctor and Sam trick the Croton into giving up a sliver of its biomass. Trask suspends Quixotl in mortal stasis to keep him alive while he makes a fresh bid for the relic. In the shrine, 
the Doctor performs a blood rite that threatens to overpower him. As the spirits of the Vortex swirl about preparing to devour the Doctor, the Relic continues to warn the Doctor that Sam has two sets of biodata because her past has been rewritten. She is the universe's latest response to the Doctor's interference. When Marie materialises, she is able to help him trap the Croton War Spear in the hold of the Faction Vessel, where they promptly destroy themselves trying to break free. For an encore, the Doctor contains the shift in a cage he has created inside his conscious mind. They go to find Quixote, but reach him too late. In return for being recorporated, Quixote has sold the relic to Trask, who has already left for the Celesti city of Mictlan. The Doctor takes Bregman to Mictlan, where Trask marks the Doctor as a Celesti agent, this time before he's actually died, thus rendering the relic immediately worthless as the Doctor's biodata has been changed once again. The Doctor is allowed, therefore, to take the relic back to the unthinkable city, where he reveals Trask only succeeded in putting the Celesti Mark into the shift who is still trapped within the Doctor's mind. Homunculate flies away in Marie, still fuming that the Doctor refused to give his body to the Time Lords. Cousin Justine and little brother Manuel leave, hoping the leader of their faction, a being known as Grandfather Paradox, shows them mercy in their failure. Bregman and a medically patched-up Cortez trek back towards the nearest village. Quixote dismantles the city and plans to err on the side of wisdom and lie low for a bit. The Celestes attempt to summon the Doctor, but instead find only the schizophrenic madness of the Shift, part faction, part enemy of the Time Lords, and now part Celesti, who is trapped in the TARDIS telepathic circuits. The Doctor buries the relic on Quiescia alongside Laika. And joining me now on the Space Time Visualizer is Ross from the Gallifrey's Most Wanted podcast. The sound might not be brilliant because we're communicating across approximately three billion years of time and space. The success of Who can save mankind? Thanks for joining us on this episode of Fun. Like inside me, you got walls and a roof. I think Alien Bodies is really kind of where it clicks, you know. Yep. Um, I think where they, and I think as a line where they go, oh, this is, this is going to be what we do. We're not, because I think they're looking. I think they're trying to be different than the new adventures, and I think they kind of overcompensate with the early ones is make them a little more like just fleshier target books. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to be all ages. We're not going to do, we're not going to push the envelope. We're not, because like with the TV show, you have to maintain a level of all of family television. And it has to be accessible to people from seven to 70. When you're doing these books and the show's been canceled, you're only required really to cater to an aging fan base. So you write toward the the age of the fan base. You're not your books. They're not counting on books being uh, 
a gateway into the character. Quite right. It's a secondary thing. It's like Star Trek novels, or you know, or any other thing like this, any type of property like this. So I think the early ones are rough, rougher. I mean, the Peel books. I like some of the concepts he does. I just don't think it's you know, it's not delivered as well. Mm. But when you get to Alien Bodies, the I think the line shifts. So when you when you first read Alien Bodies, that was your you know oh my word this I is was exciting like, what the, yeah what is this yeah. this is what the, the I know who the dog was I knew I can't remember the dog's name because I'm a astronaut nerd right so I knew who the dog was and I thought that was cool I mean at that yeah. part when I'm reading the book it's like oh man the Russian dog in space that's okay yeah. they're bearing it and then and I, even as I'm rereading it. The types of characters they introduce, they have respective res- – the writing has a respect for the reader that I appreciate that it's going to throw sh- stuff at you that isn't you, – you know, is – it's going to make you wait or earn the information. Who is Mr. Quaddle? What is the shift? And things of exposition, it's like after finds out. The other thing that I find reading it again now is that it's really televisual. Oh, yeah. You can see it as almost a screenplay. Someone's adapted a screenplay. Because the sum of the story structure is what you would see in, in a film or in a television show. I hope you can't hear my dog barking. I can, right, yeah, I can. We're gonna ha- I'm going to have to edit. If, I, if I'm not able to edit her out, listeners, that's Indy. She's on the patio. I think she's seen a squirrel. Um, if I am able to edit her out, we'll, we'll cut this bit. Um, yeah, some of the, the early chapters where you don't, you know, before everything really gets going and you're, you're jumping around all over the place and the doctors in Geneva, um, you've got all these flashbacks explaining how all the characters came to visit the unthinkable city. Um, and even the scene where the doctor leaps out of the window and lands in the TARDIS, which is sticking out the side of the building or is parked on the side of the building. It's very Moffaty and obviously... Oh yeah, that I that's a, I I thought of um several Moffat episodes where he catches River yes, Song. Yes. Yeah, like the TARDIS is his own little catcher's yes. myth. And then also <laughs> you know. obviously because this um and this may come as a spoiler, but this is about potentially it's about the doctor's corpse. Um so you've also got a strong link with the name of the doctor where the Matt Smith doctor goes to his final resting place and finds his kind of remains. So I'm wondering, do we think Stephen Moffat read and enjoyed this book and subconsciously it got its way into his system? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's no, no doubt, doubt that he was st- No, you steal. Are all artists are thieves, isn't yep. that the saying? You know, they're just, you know, we, we have River Song, that's Benny. Yeah. You know, it's Benny, you know. So, yeah. So, so what was what was going on in your life when you were between 20 and 40 and you were reading these books? I mean, let me just figure out. Well, OK, 97, yeah. I was 33 mm-hmm. years old. I was just working. I was single working. I had a decent job so I could afford, you know, 
so, you know, the lecture, you know, not the luxury, but you know, I could have that. Ha I have, I'm a collector with a comic collector, who collector. I have to have something I'm collecting yeah. all the time. I have to have something to scratch that itch right now. It's hard covered collections of comic books, you know, but it was, it was, and I had that thing, you know, I've been a who fan and a star, a Dr. Who fan. It was, I always had something to consume in the nineties. There was star 90s star Trek, which was fun and all that. And there was other things, but it was just, I, I missed new who, and I had gotten very excited when the TV movie had come, was coming. I thought, oh, we're getting it back. It's, you know, and then it mm. didn't. But I really, when I heard that these books were coming out, I was like, I want to see more of that Doctor. Because I always, I think Paul McGann in that movie was great. And it was like, crap, we've, that was a great Doctor. We've, we've lost Yeah, him. absolutely. I completely agree. You know, because, you know, he is so spot on immediately. And if they had gone further, as like all TV, pilots are rough, and you know, writers' rooms need the know who the, know, need to know the actor yeah. to write. The, you know yeah. what I mean? They start writing for the performer. Yeah. But this was just it was it was such a good story, and and once we got to aliens' bodies and, and like the faction paradise storyline and the introduction of Fitz and stuff like that, it was on a roll. I was like, I need the next one. It was really, I needed it, I needed it. Because it was, I think it's a great line. I'm, I'm going to go now, and we're joking that I, you know, I haven't finished the first one. I do want to read the new adventures. Because there are good, I know there's some good ones in there, and I know there's some turkeys. <laughs> you know, but that there's some bad ones in the Eighth Doctor range. There are ones that people would go, my brother would go, why do you read them? Are they all good? And I said, some of them are freaking amazing. And others are terrible. Yes. <laughs> but the whole range as a whole is pretty good. Yeah. And it's consistent. It has a consistent level of quality. It does. It does. I mean, I was, uh, I just finished university and um, I was trying to kind of start what I, what I laughingly refer to as a career. So I was kind of in and out of early jobs and there, there wasn't a lot of money. So, um, and I'd always, you know, I bought all of the new adventures. Um, but by the time of these BBC books, I think I got as far as Casal, which was the book immediately after this one. And I thought, OK, so we've had seven books of which one of them is good. Um, which was the a good Alien one? Bodies. OK, OK. So, um, okay. Oh, I think before I thought you were saying. Yeah, no. Um, uh, and I kind of checked out. And it was only like a couple of years later that I started picking them up again from through the library in uh, in in lovely Colchester in the UK. And um, I sort of got back into them then when they were, you know, not an expense because I really did struggle with the first couple of books. They were there was a lot of fan service. There was a lot. As you say, they weren't really aimed at our age group necessarily. They were aimed at this kind of mythical fan base who'd been brought to Doctor Who through the, the Paul McGann movie, um, which I, d I don't think that really happened. I don't think anybody watched that and then bought all of these books. Uh, I think people saw the movie, you know, and had read the new adventures and went, at least we get new books. It's just a different yeah, publisher. Exactly. And that's the way I kind of version because I had collected, I'm a collector, I had collected all the new adventures for the mo I've gotten most of them. 
Some of them were hard to get in this mm-hmm. country. But it was more to continue. But I was more, because I had such a problem with, I mean, with Time Warm Genesis and, you know, other things to entertain me that it wasn't that important. Um, but I was really kind of fixated on McGann. I'm probably one of the five people that was because it was him. You, I could, you know what yeah. I mean? I liked him enough to give them a thing, and I wanted New Who. And I, after the TV movie, I had, you know, I really, because we weren't going to get it, I was a little disappointed. It was heartbreaking. And I wanted, and I, yeah, and I wanted. Yeah, you know, as you say, he was so good, and his doctor was so good that, um, you know, any, any sort of continuation of of his story was, um, you know, had to be a good thing. And and yeah, these these looked like being the only continuation of the the Paul McGann Doctor we were going to get. Um, so having, having, I mean, so if you haven't necessarily read all of Alien Bodies recently, um, but thinking back to when you first did, the character of Mr. Quixote stands out as one of the biggest enigmas. Um, it's never really explained who he is, but do you have a theory or did you have a theory as to who it was? I think he's a Time Lord. I don't know if it's supposed to be, he's supposed to be a specific one. Like, you know, he's not the master. I mean, could he be Drax or the Monk? I so my th- I've got two possible candidates. It's it's for me. He's either Drax or he's Glitz. Oh, I didn't even think about him not being a Time Lord because there's so many Time Lords and Time Travelers. Yeah. The only really non ones that are Time are um, are the Unit folks. Yes. They're kind of the only, you know, but even they've got, you know, um, Cortez, you know, is meditation and higher planes. There's a lot of metaphysical and science, bigger, you know, everybody's a little bit bigger than just the person in the yeah. room. You know, so I, no, I, I kind of thought he was a time. Yeah, no, I think so. he is. I mean, he's, he, he does have a TARDIS, but it's not impossible that someone else could get their hands on one and learn how to fly it. I mean, it took the doctor 20 years. (laughs) Oh yeah. And you don't know what's happened because most of these people, other than the humans are from the far, the doctor's far future. Like he's been dead for millennia. I mean, it's not like he's just died, that this is something from, you know, something I think Davies kind of stole from the, the great time war because Davies read all these Davies is like us you know what yep. I mean yeah so I think even that's you know that's kind of it but no I didn't have a theory I, I like that glitz one though. well it's uh, you know but, it's it's there if anybody wants to buy into that that's, I, that's my a, theory <laughs> I'm a monk fan, I, and that might be recently I, I listened to a lot of Big Finish and I love Rufus Hound as the monk and Gemma Whelan as the nun a female incarnation of them. And I kind of like, you know, I like that. I did, and, I, I, and in the new adventures, they use the monk a lot. They, they use him. He's in a sort of five book story arc. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, so we recently watched um, his stories in my other podcast, all of time and space and mm-hmm. watching them for the first time. It really struck me that this was such a, an open goal and for them to never use the monk again in the series, was so bizarre to me. He was such a good character. 
Yeah, it's, it really struck me that they've never used him in Modern Who. But they also have not used the Ronda. It looks like they're only do- Time Lords they're ever going to use as a Doctor and the Master. Yeah, yeah. And that may be copyright or trait memory, because in the original show, if you created the character, the character is yours, not the BBC. So who created Nation? Does he own the monk? No, it wasn't Nation. I don't even remember. Whoever wrote yeah, the Time I can't memory. remember now. Yeah, um, I don't remember now. <laughs> And presumably Pip and Jane Baker own the Rani. Yeah. No, so, well, anyway, they're, they're on, the, well, on the subject of, of people from the kind of black and white, crinkly, old era of Doctor mm-hmm. Who turning up unexpectedly, what did you make of the return of the Crotons? I absolutely freaking loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Once you know it's them, and they give them some backstory and they flesh them out, they work really, really well. And they pop up a couple times in the Eighth Doctor novels because someone that people start because Miles used them so well that you know the whole thing that they're based on servo robot their that form is just based on something else and that they are this and that he flesh and Miles because he doesn't Lawrence Miles doesn't give us every all the details ever mm. which I think is a good thing when you're writing a character don't give it all away leave some mystery but I love I love this. Not reinvention of the Crotons, but the fleshing out of them. And it was cool. And the whole thing about... Sir, I loved the thing where he... Just, he the Doctor lands, materializes TARDIS around the ship. Or a TARDIS around mm. the ship. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I loved it. I thought it was great. And I see, I would prefer... That kind of reintroduction of an old cut character. Instead of writing a story that is a, a duplicate of... Um, of the original is to write it as if you could have as they could have written it with a a big budget yeah, yeah. kind of thing you know that like see you know the concept of the crystalline monster aliens is great let's flesh it out no i love yeah it. i i thought it was it was delicious when um they're in the auction and ecobalt offers the secrets of the croton war arsenal as his bid and everyone immediately sort of looks a bit embarrassed and goes anyway moving on sort of really <laughs> crotons look like a, a third-rate villain when they're clearly quite powerful um but the other kind of i suppose most notable introduction in this book of a new concept is faction paradox now faction paradox i think alone um is so it's such a, a wonderful idea and creation and really um galvanized the book range but it's it's it just did. one of three or four competing ideas in this book and that kind of makes me think of Lawrence Miles the same way I think of a writer like Douglas Adams someone who has so many ideas and is so um blessed with <laughs> being able to have more than one you know big gimmick in his books what did you think of the introduction of the faction I was really intrigued, and I'd, and rereading it is like oh, it's weird to reread it because when I first read it, my my memory of it is wow, that's a cool concept. These these time travelers that are sometimes this future enemy, you know, and just the that it's voodoo and there's the mysticism thing about it and all that. I when it was cool, and as it became more, as it slowly became more and more and more important, 
And then even when that storyline was over, it had ramifications mm -hmm. um, down the line. Um, I really liked it because as the mystery grew, I think uh, was Steve Cole the editor of this line. The I whole think time? no. For the first kind of year, it was it was someone called Noella Buffini who was not a, a Doctor Who person, and then it was Steve Cole, and then I want to say it was Justin Richards. Okay, because I felt like the way they spaced it out and how the Facts and Paradox arc was was creating other arcs. Mm. You know it what was... I mean? Like the, the 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 exile on Earth for a hundred years is really, you know, a side effect of that, yeah. you know. It was very sophisticated stuff at the time. It kind of made me think of a show like The X Files where you know, your faction paradox was like your conspiracy story arc in the X-Files and you'd get a big kind of dramatic season finale that yeah. would link back to that. I never expected to get it. I, I mean, I, I never expected to get an ending to it. No. I I thought it was just going to be a background mystery and we might see uh, Sister Justine, you know, she pops up again and others pop up again. And is and wasn't it designed? Miles didn't write the end of. Lawrence Miles didn't write the end. No, of it. he I think stepped away from it after I want to say after interference, yeah. um, and yeah. and other shall we say perhaps lesser talents <laughs> decided to wrap things up in that regard. Did but I I didn't mind the wrap up. I mean, it was you know, but I it's a that kind of. A, are we doing spoilers? Well, we can, but we should we should also try and limit our conversation to alien bodies rather than otherwise yeah. otherwise but we'll yeah, be here but, all day. And I'm going to need okay. more tea. But yeah, I <laughs> I I liked it. I I thought it was, they were such a good concept. I was glad they stuck out, and I was glad when they came back. I mean, the visual description of their sort of TARDIS, which they call the Shrine, and it's this kind of black console room, and inside every roundel there's a skull. Um, and instead of the console, you just have this daze that's covered in, in blood. And, and it was just fantastic. And it was even better reading it this time around. Yeah, there was aspects when I was rereading that it was there were things I didn't remember. Because, I mean, I haven't read this in 30 well, no. years. Yeah. So but it but the stuff was there. Like I remembered once I got to Mr. When I heard saw Mr. Coatle's name, I was, oh, OK, that's that guy. And. Sister Justine, they, because I had a vision of what she looked like in my head, and it's still kind of yeah. there. Because you know, and then Sam, who wasn't my favorite companion. Mm. So, <laughs> I'm. Oh, it's a, she. Okay. Well, Sam was difficult because I think. I mean, they had created other brand new companions in the books before. You think of obviously Benny Summerfield and and Chris and Roz, and they were very sort of distinct and well-drawn whereas sam never really for me i could never visualize her i never really had much of a handle on who she was and there isn't a great deal in this book to to pin her down i mean she's just a generic doctor who companion yeah exactly it's a uh, you know it's it's ace it's not ace yeah yeah you know it's kind of like they took the mod they took that mold of the modern companion which starts with ace and just kind of did it, and and then because dark, the idea of dark Sam starts in this mm. book that there's something off about her, and then that plot line starts. 
I just, I never really, she never connected with me. No, no, she was, uh, <coughs> she was, she was not the, not the best. Um, so no, another no. mystery, obviously, is that they are attending this auction to buy the doctor's body. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a little kind of sequence at the end <laughs> where Quixote, I think, casts a little bit of doubt on the the actual provenance of the body. Do you think it it was the doctor's body or or not? Or did it have to be or? I don't know. I was I always thought it was left open. <coughs> it was left open and could it have changed you know time could it have changed because you know the doctor was there <coughs> um yeah and you know i don't do they do they ever really come back to it i don't believe they did certainly not in any of the books i read um yeah so you know it, it i because i think like even in moffitt's t the name of the doctor are we sure that that's really his you know yeah yeah you know because we keep you know what's canon they keep everybody keeps changing the rules yeah i like to think every time the tardis lands then that reality around it kind of crystallizes and becomes real but all the other adventures are kind of therefore they might they might have been wiped out of history or they might be different so that allows you to get away with any kind of continuity error. I think I think oh, this yeah. might be the doctor's body or a doctor's <laughs> body, but um, you know, I don't I don't choose to see it as the actual full, definite ending of the doctor because, as we all know, he's never going to have one, or he oh, or no, she. No, no, you no. Know. I like in these in these books is you never know because they not only hint about a future doctor <gasps> stuff, but there also is a they talk about adventures that haven't happened yet or at, or like there's a reference to a six doctor adventure and they infer, you know, Cortez has met a different doctor, yep. but it doesn't say which one yep. it is. So I, that I like that aspect. Yeah. I think it's, it's very, um, it's very good that they are allowing extra adventures to have happened off screen as it were. Um, and it opens up the the range to doing new things, although it does also open up the range to a lot of fan service where the Eighth Doctor goes and meets Jago and Lightfoot or what have you. Um, oh, yeah. But, yeah, so what, what's your kind of takeaway from this book? What's the, the one thing that you think this book does that that makes it a classic? That you can tell it basically it's structured like a like a traditional Doctor Who story, but it is it's it can deal with with higher science science fiction uh, things that the show would never deal yeah. with. You know, like um, voodoo time travel, um, you know, making the quarks interesting, you know, and a superpower, making them Dalek like level baddies that you can you you can use the template of Doctor Who and do high science fiction or highbrow science, not highbrow, but, you yeah. know, a little high con high concept science fiction instead of just, because the old Who is just basically, it's plot driven. Yeah. But, the, and the plots are basic for the most part, you know, where this is a little more complicated, but it's never so complicated that you're not engaged with the characters. So, and I think that's really what it gives you is we can do 
a high concept science fiction novel in the in the under, in the structures of a Doctor Who story. Yeah. Tribute the success saved mankind from. Thanks for joining us on this episode. You got walls and a roof. Well, arrange a country. Recharge. Oh, for f- how are you supposed to conduct a call across time and space if you have to charge the batteries every 20 minutes? I don't know. Um, we will try and find Ross again at some point in the future, but thanks very much for joining me to talk about Alien Bodies, Ross. Um, we've also heard from the regular crew, uh, and let's turn firstly to DK and see what he made of Alien Bodies. I absolutely adore Alien Bodies by Lawrence Miles. It came fairly early in the series, and up until that point, the adventures starting with The Eight Doctors by Turn Sticks, they'd all been kind of fairly run-of-the-mill adventures. It seemed a step down from the latter days, or one could say the dying days, of the Virgin New Adventures, and the creativity that they seemed to spawn. That always seemed to be put on a back burner with the Eighth Doctor Adventures until this book with Lawrence Miles. And it's just absolutely full to the brim of ideas. The amount of characters in it, the concepts in it, whether it be Faction Paradox, Marie the TARDIS, the the enemy. It's just, from the word go, you're actually drawn into a world that did feel very much like a Virgin New Adventures. And it paved the way for the Eighth Doctor Adventures to come. I think if this book hadn't have arrived when it did, it would have the range would have continued with the uh, the same kind of run of the mill adventures, and the fact that it expanded on Miles's concepts with the enemy, and obviously reintroducing faction paradox and the war, it may not have been handled brilliantly in the end, but uh, just the fact that they took a chance on the concepts introduced in this novel and expanded upon them, I absolutely love it. I also love the. Uh, the switcheroo in this way you're expecting the Daleks to turn up and it's not actually the Daleks, it's the Crotons. I, I can't say enough positive things about this book. It turned me from someone that was rapidly losing interest in the Eighth Doctor Adventures series and turned me into a fan and I remain a fan to this day. I think it's an absolutely cracking book. I agree with you completely. Uh, let's see what Liam's got to say. Liam wants to talk about continuity. Oh, Alien Bodies, where to begin? Well, first thing I'm going to tell you is that this book is glorious. And unlike the, probably the first half a dozen of the range of the Eighth Doctor Adventures, this feels to me like it's got better with age. It now feels like the entire Eighth Doctor Adventure range in microcosm. I'm going to wind you back a little bit now and tell you why I think that is. So you got the Eighth Doctor Adventures opening with the Eight Doctors, funnily enough. You know, this is a continuity fest. If we were looking at, uh, you know, your Star Trek equivalent, we'd be looking at something written by Rick Berman with, like, practically every single character you could ever hear of. i tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where, at the end, everybody turns up to say their catchphrase for absolutely no reason, you know. By the end of the Eighth Doctor Adventures, I really wouldn't have been surprised if we'd have seen the man down at 68 Totters Lane had come in just to tell us what he had on cheese on toast on Sunday night. It's all-encompassing. It's all a continuity. We're launching a new Doctor 
with the kind of looking back on the previous seven incarnations of the role to kind of use as a yardstick for our new guy, which I always thought was a bit bizarre. Funnily enough, it turns out we might be doing something similar next year with the centenary in the um, anniversary special, but I digress. So, but coming to Alien Bodies, you know, now we're, we're getting to a point where everything here is new, you know. The concepts are so strong that they've endured for over two decades later. You know, the concept of the auction itself, uh, the space dog, at the, you know, the beginning and the end of the novel, spoilers there. Um, you know, even down to the way that the Eighth Doctor conducts himself. You know, we're seeing here the first frisson of that Tigresque excitement of the TV movie start to fall away. And we're seeing an adventurer here realising that his actions have consequences, that there is a wider world out there, there's a world, a universe out there, and that they have consequences for him, that there are things coming in the dark that he's not aware of. Faction Paradox is a fantastic adversary because at this point it's so opaque. The story's not been told. Our imagination is left to fill in the gaps of it. So, you know, amazingly something. I mean, I've just talked to you all about continuity. When you get, you know, spoiler, you're going to get the Crotons coming. You're sitting there going, what the hell is going on here? We've actually taken an enemy from probably one of the most universally derided stories of the 1960s. I'm sure some people will argue otherwise. And we've planted it into a narrative that's firmly taken a foothold to establish a brave new world for our new Doctor. It's a fantastic book. It's got better with age. As I've said before, I feel like it's now the entire Eighth Doctor adventure range in microcosm. Read it. If you haven't read it, go and read it. If you won't want to read it, read it again, man. And then come back and tell me what you think about where we're going to go next. I'll hand you back to the big man. I've literally never been called a big man before. I'm five foot nine. Um, let's talk to Andrew, who wants to talk about the significance of where this book takes the story arc. I think the thing that I really remember most about Alien Bodies is the kind of story arc significance of it. Um, it was the beginning of sort of the um, faction paradox stuff, um, which became a massive part of the range of novels. Uh, it's a really good story in terms of um, what Sam gets to do. Um, she gets a really strong, um, a really strong narrative uh, that she follows. I think the characterisation of the Doctor is absolutely spot on. Um, I love the, uh, you know, the scenes with him and the General. Um, but most of all, uh, I think it's. It's a really good introduction to this kind of future Gallifrey, um, which fascinates me. Um, I love Homunculet and his sentient TARDIS Marie, obviously later in, in the range. Um, we meet Compassion and uh, you know we find out more about that kind of era of Gallifrey, which is a really sort of important part of the storytelling and the storytelling beats um, of the Eighth Doctor adventures and a, an awful lot of fun you know I find that kind of future Gallifrey society um, really interesting and I love the kind of future unit as well I think it's unisic um, that they are that they're rebranded and I think they're really interesting 
And of course, another standout moment is the moment with the third Doctor and Sarah Jane. And I always found that really curious because, you know, Sarah Jane is really um, quite a famous companion that everybody thinks of as, as Tom Baker's companion. But obviously the significance there is that um, she was with the third Doctor leading up to his regeneration. And of course, the third Doctor's regeneration becomes a really important part of the Faction Paradox arc in a scene... Uh, that that comes up in in a later book that was quite controversial at the time I, I seem to remember um so absolutely fascinating alien bodies it's got some real fantastic content to it um future time lord society is a really great thing to explore it's sentient tardises um and this idea of the doctor's body um, obviously being up for auction and I, you know the way that the novel is bookended is beautiful so Sarah asked the question um, in that opening kind of prologue section the doctor goes and, and buries Lyca the very first dog that was sent out into space but who will bury him and then at the end it's the eighth doctor that buries his own future body and of course, you completely forgot to mention, but you know this idea of of the Doctor's grave and and the Doctor being buried uh, is something that is so fascinating that Stephen Moffat nicked it um, in his Time of the Doctor, um, and sorry, in Name of the Doctor, um, that Stephen Moffat kind of nicked that idea and and ran with it. So it's an important book, Alien Bodies. It's it's got an awful lot of uh, great stuff in it. Um, it's not always the easiest read, but I love it. I mean, it's starting to sound like absolutely everybody loves Alien Bodies. Um, maybe my famous curmudgeonly friend Kevin will have something different to say. Okay, so Alien Bodies. It's my first ever Eighth Doctor Adventures novel, and hey, what a start, because it's one of those books. You know, one of the novels everyone's heard about and raves about and apparently is regularly in the top ten of best Doctor Who stories. And Lawrence Miles is that author. This is meant to be something special. And without getting into a full-blown review, because I'm not meant to do that, I can't help but make a few comments. And it's, it's well, it's slow and perhaps too long and overwritten and has a simple idea at its heart. Yet it's extremely complex. And it throws more new ideas at the page than the series has seen in years. And at times it's almost like the Doctor's wandered in from his own TV universe into someone else's that's darker and stranger, but it's oddly familiar and makes even less sense. And it loves the minutiae of the show's continuity. And hey, it's got crotons that are menacing. And, and, and heck, back in 1997, this must have blown fans' minds. And there's no doubt it's well written and Lawrence Miles clearly wants to do something new and to be a cross between Alan Moore and Douglas Adams. And there's some lovely turns of phrase in the book and the backwards flashback structure works really well. But even then, Alan Moore kind of got there first with some of the Time War ideas because I am old enough to remember the backup strips in Doctor Who Weekly. And I know this is only the sixth novel in the range and the eighth Doctor's only had one TV adventure to try and form his personality, but the Doctor in this is just there. Miles seems more interested in his world-building and new characters than the star of the show. The thing is, what I can see is that I probably would have had a different relationship and a different reaction to the book if I'd read it back when it was first published rather than now, 25 years later. 
I've watched and read a lot of science fiction in my life, especially since 1997, and many of the concepts presented in Alien Bodies have been used elsewhere, even in the revived series of Doctor Who. So what was perhaps new and original back then is less so. I just wasn't bowled over by this book as I expected to be, given the importance accorded to it by fandom. It's a shame. Maybe it's me. Let's end with some positives and my favourite sections or lines. Well, good old Arthur C. Clarke and his mysterious world get a mention, so that's a thumbs up from me. I also like the mention of the alien Quirkafleek. A shout out to Fat Freddy's cat from the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers. Or maybe even ZX Spectrum classic Jet Set Willy. I'll take either. But my favourite comes when the Doctor's fighting against the conceptual entity, the Shift. And the chapter ends with, then he closed his eyes and switched himself off. Yes, yeah, a bit like my space-time visualiser did halfway through my conversation with Ross. Never mind. Let's turn to someone who is significantly cleverer than me, who spotted something that I did not. Jason. Hey guys, this is Jason from Doctor Who Literature. There's a lot to discuss about alien bodies, as you've heard already. Lawrence Miles brought, at a conservative estimate, maybe a zillion new ideas to the book to the whole EDA range, and he puts all those ideas together with remarkable coherence. And that's why I want to talk to you about the Crotons. The Crotons are important. When Alien Bodies came out in 1997, fandom was in its 30th year of laughing at the Crotons. A, not the most highly regarded classic series story. B, the Croton costumes were famously so unwieldy that the poor actors had no mobility and no vision which made them look somewhat inept on screen. Miles does acknowledge that in the book. He literally has another character at the auction snicker at them. But if you get past that, he makes his Croton tough. We see Ecobalt destroy billions of enemy ships in a flashback, and we later get to see a whole Croton war spear in action. In short, Ecobalt is a pretty immense threat, and he does kill off a major character. Now, of course, we are beginning the era of the Time War, so as impressive as the Crotons are, they still eventually serve as cannon fodder to show how powerful Miles' new enemy is. But that's a fine way to handle a returning monster. You show how strong the monster is, and then, because monsters never win in Doctor Who, you have it fall prey to the new monster. But Ecobalt is a great villain name. And it's not just the Crotons. Miles also goes back to the Trouton era and brings us Trask. Now, if you remember Trask, boy, you're some fan. He was a minor villain in the Highlanders, and he is impliedly killed off towards the end of the story, thrown overboard. Miles goes back and he re-examines this, and he has the character having drowned to death while the Doctor watches from afar, Trask then comes back as a reanimated corpse with revenge on his mind. While there is a lot of new and exciting things in Alien Bodies, I really enjoy the way Miles goes back into past continuity and does new things with old villains, both the infamous, the Crotons, and the obscure Trask. Miles loves his continuity, and he uses it to tell a good story, but he's not slavishly recreating the past. He is doing new things with it. And for that reason, among many, many other reasons, Alien Bodies is quite the book, and I'm glad to hear it's celebrated. 
Celebrated is very much the word I would use. What a good coincidence it's been that uh, we've started this new podcast with Alien Bodies, which is one of the best few Doctor Who books that's ever been written. And no one would disagree with that. Phil Coleman. Skip here. I'm one of the hosts of Fiction Paradox, the world's only podcast dedicated to the BBC book's Eighth Doctor Adventures. If you've never read Lawrence Miles' Alien Bodies, then you're in for a real treat. It was originally envisioned as a virgin new adventure, but ended up as the sixth EDA being released in November of 1997. It begins with a prelude featuring the Third Doctor and Sarah Jane. This moves on to a James Bond-like opening where the Eighth Doctor is engaged in a game of chess with a general from the United Nations Security Yard Corps. The situation goes south, and the Doctor auto-defenestrates only to land in the TARDIS, which was hovering just outside. Ian and company will no doubt give you the details, so I won't go into the plot very deeply, but the Doctor and Sam end up going to an auction where the highest bidder takes home an artifact known only as the Relic. Miles keeps you guessing for quite a while as to, in the words of Brad Pitt's Detective Mills, what's in the box. The plot cast aside most Doctor Who storytelling conventions and gave us a weird tale that, to my mind, had something of a Michael Moorcock vibe to it. The Doctor, our eternal champion perhaps, confronts the voodoo time-traveling cult and arch-enemies of the Time Lords faction paradox, which would later get its own dedicated series. He also learns that there is much more to his companion Sam than a blonde, rebellious teenager who supports Greenpeace. Plus, Miles makes a Crotons cool with one called E. Cobalt, who hijacks a Dalek ship after dispatching its crew. While there are references to the TV show, Miles creates plenty of new characters and backstory to populate this strange, yet often funny story. As I said before, Alien Bodies was originally meant to be a VNA. That series had the intention of presenting stories, quote, too broad and deep for the small screen, unquote. While this story seems to adhere to that brief, some elements of the book did, in fact, make it to the small screen. Remember that opening scene where the Doctor leaps out of the window? Now recall River Song doing the same thing in Day of the Moon. In Alien Bodies, there is a woman named Marie who is, in fact, spoiler, a TARDIS. We also learn that the Time Lords are engaged in an epic conflict with a mysterious enemy that is also able to travel through time. A time war, you might say. And just as with the name of the Doctor, the Doctor's eventual death here in a future battle has enormous repercussions. Continuity references and elements horked by the new series writers aside, this is a wonderful tale. Miles populates his story with interesting characters and their mysterious motivations. It is dense, but not too dense. It is challenging, but fun. The strange web of events presented here is peppered with humor and presented at the perfect pace. It finds that nice middle ground between a slow and contemplative Andrei Tarkovsky film and the breakneck speed of contemporary Doctor Who. Alien Bodies may not be canon, but it is essential Doctor Who. But let's be specific for a moment. Kitty, what floated your boat? Uh, can we talk about the Type 103 Tardises? Because honestly, I've been dying to talk about the Type 103 Tardises ever since I first read this book, because they're really, really cool. <laughs> the idea of the Doctor's Tardis being a little to a lot bit sentient and alive has almost always been around pretty much since, like, Edge of Destruction, way back in Hot Nulls era. And a lot of New Who episodes and expanded content have pushed that even further, like, you know, The Doctor's Wife, which is one of my all-time favorite episodes. The Tatus in the humanoid body? Like, what's not to like about that? Anyway, 
This book takes the concept uh, several years before it ever appeared on screen, and that it just cranks all the way up to 11 in the best way. And it's just such a brilliant inference to draw from canon. Tardises can disguise their outer shells as pretty much anything, and we already know that Tardises have some form of consciousness and personality, so why not disguise a Tardis as a person? It's just, it's just really good. Murray is great, she unzips her face to let people climb into her, which is gruesomely delightful, and also, unfortunately, there's no non-dirty way of phrasing the whole people climb into her body thing, which has led to some really unfortunate conversations where I've tried to explain uh, her whole deal with people who aren't so deep in the lore as I am, but yeah. Uh, her outer shawl is disguised as a 1960s policewoman due to an unfortunate chameleon circuit glitch, which, which okay, it's a bit self-referential and a bit wink-wink-nudge-nudge, but I love it all the same. And her relationship with her pilot forms a nice central pivot point for the plot, which I love especially because said relationship is such an interesting contrast to the Doctor's own relationship with his own Tatus. And the introduction of walking, talking, people-shaped Tatuses in this book is the obvious catalyst for what happens to uh, poor old Compassion later on in the books, which, um, spoilers, I guess? But I guess we're not actually worrying about spoilers since we're doing all these books out of order. Okay, never mind. Anyway, uh, the bottom line here is that Homuncula is a coward, because if I had a fully humanoid Tatis who was also my best friend, I would respect her and cherish her for all she's worth, and I would also tell her that. Appreciate your Tatis, my man. Obviously you care about her, but you know, you could make it a little more obvious to her. That's all, Kitty out. Thank you, Kitty. So the big question, I suppose, to take away from this is given how everyone says this is an amazing book that innovated a huge amount and kind of is a template for everything that's ever happened in Doctor Who since, why didn't Lawrence Miles go on to become the showrunner of Doctor Who? I wanted to use today's ep talking about alien bodies to springboard into what I like to call the tragedy of Lawrence Miles. As I've said before on this very podcast, the Faction Paradox arc is my favourite thing in all of the EDAs. Coming in sixth in publication order, Alien Bodies grabbed by the throat a line of books that didn't really seem to know what it was doing or what it wanted to be, and gave it a good shake. I don't think I'm over-egging the pudding to say the whole EDA range pivots on Miles' first EDA novel. It's an extraordinary achievement. Behind the scenes, however, Miles wasn't playing nicely with others, whether in a professional sense and sharing his ideas so the range could really dig deep into his material, or in an after-hours sense where he would take potshots at fellow Doctor Who authors and say what he really thought. The guy did himself no favours at all. In a real click, like Doctor Who publishing can be, that's suicidal. Now, we can sit here and debate the things he said or things that were said back to him, and there was a bit of that too, or even deeper-rooted issues he had with the likes of Stephen Moffat based on things that had happened back in the 90s between the two, but the upshot of it is that he stopped writing Doctor Who novels. Now, based on what he produced for the NA and EDA ranges, I find that tragic enough. However, when you also consider his TV script, The Book of the World, written in 2007 and released in 2008, which basically out-Moffat's Moffat stories before Moffat even wrote them, it's undeniable that Miles had talent no matter where you fall on the guy and his actions personally. 
But isn't that sometimes the way? People with talent sometimes aren't the easiest to deal with. Sometimes personality defects are the byproduct of other abilities, abilities that enable someone to come up with ideas that leave their peers agape and publish novels that stand head and shoulders apart from what else surrounds them in a range. And that, I think, is the tragedy of Lawrence Miles, an author with ideas and ability, but who eventually blew himself up long before we got anywhere near exploring what he could have done for Doctor Who long term. Thanks, Rob. We should probably wrap this up, so let's give the final word to my potty-mouthed friend, Tristan, from Western Australia. Oh man, alien bodies. Lawrence Miles, the bad boy of Doctor Who writing. This one changes everything. He had done Christmas on a Rational Planet for the New Adventures, which was fantastic. But then the New Adventures range folds, Virgin loses the license, the BBC takes the books in-house, and um, we have the beginnings of the EDAs and the, the PDAs. And you could tell that they were going for a very different um, market. It was definitely pitched a lot younger, um, especially Virgin had obviously felt uh, that they didn't have quite so many restraints uh, as the BBC would naturally put in uh, place. The TV movie comes out, and obviously they're trying to go for a slightly younger audience. And so you have all of these people who are a bit more mature, who were very invested in the NAs. And then the EDAs come out, and they were really disappointing. The Eight Doctors felt like it was written for 12-year-olds. Um, you could tell that it was Terence Dick's trying to address everything that he didn't like. Um, Vampire Science was great, uh, but again, that's because I have a fondness for uh, Kate Ormond's writing and her and John Blunt together. Uh, fantastic team. But the rest of the EDAs were plodding. There, there was nothing that really grabbed my attention uh, about them. But then, Alien Bodies. Jesus fucking Christ. What an absolute head trip. Lawrence Miles introduces so many concepts that a lot of other people pick up and, and run with, and obviously they probably don't do it quite uh, as well. But this is where it all kicks off. Um, the, oh, the the beautiful scene, uh, finding uh, Laika uh, in orbit, poor, you know, any, oh God, anything with a dead dog in it is going to obviously get a lot of people going. But then, uh, you know, the, the Doctor and, and Sam attending this, uh, auction and of course the auction is bidding on uh, the doctor's dead body the beginnings of faction paradox and all oh, the beautiful things that that concept will will bring uh, into the future and obviously you know it's not all good looking forward with what happens with faction paradox and Lawrence Miles and his relations with the editors of uh, the ADA line but from that we have the spinnings out of the, the Faction Paradox line through uh, various publication houses, which are still going now um, and are still absolutely amazing. Um, but Alien Bodies is where all of that uh, begins. And just, it's an astonishing uh, book. And I envy anyone reading it for the first time. I would love to be able to read it for the first time uh, again. I haven't actually read it since it came out. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to read it again. And, you know, whether, you know, often these things don't live up to the, the memories that you have in it, but there is so much about that book that is just astonishing. Uh, yeah, what a book. 
Thanks, Tristan. You can hear more from Tristan next month because he's joining me here in the Secret Library of St John the Beheaded to talk about the theft of some very valuable manuscripts indeed. Not the New Adventures, not the Eighth Doctor of Adventures, but some handwritten notebooks containing secret knowledge. Ooh-er. Join us then as we discuss all-consuming fire next time on We're All Stories in the End. <laughs>